presenting this month's special series, Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Focus on Children's Health is supported by Genzyme Corporation, researching the most challenging areas of medical need. Learn more about one of the world's leading biotechnology companies at Genzyme.com. Your host is Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures. Why is it important to create a comprehensive understanding about leukemia in order to make sure we understand how to provide good treatment for kids that have this disease? I'm talking today with Dr. Stephen Hunger, Professor of Pediatrics, Section Head of Hematology, Oncology, and Bone Marrow Transplant, the Ergen Family Chair in Pediatric Cancer at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Dr. Hunger, welcome to ReachMD. Well, thank you very much, Bruce. I'm glad to be here. Let's talk about acute lymphoblastic leukemia. What is it and how does it affect children? Acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which I'll call ALL, is a cancer of the blood cells. It is most common in children as compared to adults. In fact, it's the most common cancer that occurs in children and it accounts for about 25% of cancers that occur in children under 15 years of age. The cancer is derived from the bone marrow, but the leukemia cells circulate in the peripheral blood most commonly. And children usually present with signs of bone marrow insufficiency or failure, so they typically have anemia, thrombocytopenia, and often infections related to a decrease in the normal number of white blood cells. What age does it usually start at? Is there a typical age and a typical presentation? Well, there's certainly an age peak in early childhood. Between three and five years of age, approximately, the rate is much higher than it is in younger childhood and then gradually decreases to until about age 25 when it reaches the consistent, relatively low level seen in adults. So a significant percentage of children with ALL are less than 10 years old when they're initially diagnosed. Do we think there's a reason why there's that peak at that age range? Well, there are a number of theories to try to explain it, but I don't think that we have a firm handle on it. Interestingly, most cases of leukemia, at least those that occur in young children, probably originate in utero, and we can backtrack the leukemia cells and show that the initial changes in the development of leukemia are typically present at birth in children who develop leukemia in the first five to ten years of life. Does it depend on when the child develops leukemia Does that determine their prognosis? Well, there are a number of important prognostic factors that we've identified in childhood ALL. And two of the most important and certainly the easiest to assess are the age at diagnosis and the initial white blood cell count. And in general, diagnosis within the first year of life is associated with a poor prognosis. And the best prognosis are children who are diagnosed within this age peak of three to five years and particularly those with a low initial white blood cell count. So we see really a steady decrease in prognosis with increasing white count and increasing age, which allows us to use age and white count to group patients into different risks for therapy. And when we categorize them by this risk, do we provide different treatments to them, or do we just know that we're going to get different outcomes? The correct answer is both. If you use the same therapy for all children, you will clearly see that those that we call standard risk, 
which are children between 1 and 10 years of age and with an initial white blood cell count less than 50,000, have a significantly better outcome than those who are high risk or either over 10 years of age and or have an initial white count over 50,000. To overcome this, most study groups group children into these two risk groups, standard and high risk, and give different intensities of therapy. So we know that the standard risk children can attain a cure rate of over 90% with less intensive therapy than we need for older children or those with a higher white blood cell count who are treated more intensively. And this 90% cure rate for the standard group, what kind of treatment are they receiving over what period of time? Well, all children with ALL receive several phases of therapy, but usually the first six to eight months is relatively intensive therapy, and then there's a prolonged period of what we call maintenance chemotherapy, which really involves only uh, daily oral medications and once a month low-intensity intravenous medications. And the total length of therapy, both for children with standard risk and high-risk ALL, ranges from about two and a half to about three and a half years, but only the first six to eight months is relatively intensive. And you said the standard group gets about a 90% cure rate. What about the high-risk group? Our current numbers are that children diagnosed with ALL in the United States in the 2000 to 2005 era have a five-year survival rate of 90%. When we look at event-free survival, so those who have not relapsed or had another adverse event within that time, we see the standard risk patients are in the low 90% range, and the high-risk patients, even though they're treated with stronger therapy typically, are probably somewhere in the range of 80% in terms of five-year event-free survival. So there's different subtypes of ALL. We've been sort of categorizing them in standard risk and high risk, but within ALL, there's lots of different subtypes. Can you talk about that and how they're differentiated from each other? Yes, I think one of the most important things we've come to realize over the past few decades is that leukemia or acute lymphoblastic leukemia is really a constellation of very different diseases. So they all look relatively similar under the microscope, but there are very different genetic events that underlie the development of leukemia. And we typically characterize those into initiating events, which are often chromosome translocations or exchanges of genetic material between chromosomes, and then the secondary and tertiary cooperative events. So what we've learned is that our, although effective, our risk grouping based solely on clinical features such as white blood cell count and age is really incomplete. Because I can see a five-year-old boy with ALL who has an initial white cell count of 25,000, and if he has one set of genetic features, he might have a cure rate of 95% with relatively low-intensity therapy. And if he has a different set of genetic features, he might have a cure rate of 60% and merit consideration for a bone marrow transplant. So more and more what we are doing is moving into so-called molecular classification of leukemias to separate the whole spectrum of leukemia into probably dozens of different subtypes. And this becomes more important as we have specific therapies that might be particularly effective in one subtype of leukemia but might not have any impact in another subtype. 
If you've just tuned in, you're listening to our monthly specialty series, Focus on Children's Health, on ReachMD, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. My guest is Dr. Stephen Hunger, Professor of Pediatrics, Section Head of Hematology, Oncology, and Bone Marrow Transplant, and the Ergen Family Chair in Pediatric Cancer at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, and we're talking about acute lymphoblastic leukemia research. So does the subtype matter in prognosis? Yes, quite a bit. Tell us about some of the rare ones, like hypodiploid ALL. How many patients does this represent, and what are we doing to try and dig out what's different about hypodiploid ALL besides its chromosome number? Yes, hypodiploid ALL is one of the most uh, problematic subtypes we deal with currently. So there are about 3,000 cases of ALL diagnosed in the U.S. each year in persons less than 20 years of age. And somewhere in the range of 2 to 2.5% two of them are hypodiploid ALL, meaning that they have fewer than the normal number of chromosomes. And previously, all we have understood about this subtype is the leukemia cells contain fewer chromosomes. The fewer chromosomes they contain, the worse the outcome seems to be, and that these patients do much worse than others with a normal chromosome number or too many chromosomes. We haven't really understood why any of this has happened, so it is more a case of phenomenology, if you will, that we can identify this subtype by what it looks like, and we know that they won't do very well with our typical chemotherapy approaches, but we don't really know how to improve their outcome. Because of that, the approach in most cases has been to pursue bone marrow transplantation in these patients once they're identified. And that probably in, improves the outcome a bit, but it's really a very nonspecific therapy, and it's not directed at any of the underlying molecular abnormalities that might exist in this subtype of leukemia. You mentioned earlier we talked about secondary and tertiary events. Can you describe what those are, and are they relevant in hypodiploid ALL? What we know through studies of the past few decades is that all cancers contain multiple genetic changes. In the leukemias, it appears that there are probably somewhere around a half dozen genetic changes required for the development of most cases of leukemia. And recent studies have begun to divide these in all cancers into two types of changes. One are the so-called initiating events, which are also called driver mutations, and the others are passenger mutations, which may just be random changes that happen at the same time in a cell as an important change, and if you will, go along for the ride with the important change. In leukemia, what we see is that the first events often are chromosome translocations that either bring together two genes that were on different chromosomes to make a, a fusion gene or fusion protein or lead to overexpression of a normal protein. We've understood that for many years. What we've started to understand over the past few years are the nature of the second, third, and fourth events that happen in leukemia. And in ALL, many of the secondary events are alterations in genes that normally control the development of lymphocytes. I think that this is a very important and fundamental insight into leukemia development that was made by my colleague, Dr. Mulligan, only several years ago and helps to point us in new directions as we think about 
how to develop new therapies. We've been talking with Dr. Stephen Hunger, Professor of Pediatrics, Section Head of Hematology, Oncology, and Bone Marrow Transplant, and the Ergen Family Chair in Pediatric Cancer at the University of Colorado School of Medicine about acute lymphoblastic leukemia and some of the research going on to try and bring our cure rate from 90% even to 100%. Dr. Hunger, thanks for joining us on ReachMD. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Focus on Children's Health is supported by Genzyme Corporation, researching the most challenging areas of medical need. Learn more about one of the world's leading biotechnology companies at Genzyme.com. Genzyme Corporation is proud to support this important programming for ReachMD listeners. Genzyme Corporation does not control the editorial content of this broadcast. The views expressed are solely those of the guests who are selected by ReachMD. To download this program or any program in the Focus on Children's Health series, please visit us at ReachMD.com. How can mucopolysaccharidosis 1 or MPS 1 present? Listen as Dr. Chet Whitley, Director, Advanced Therapies, Department of Pediatrics and Institute of Human Genetics, University of Minnesota, describes a case of MPS1. Allison was referred to the University of Minnesota Genetics Clinic when there were concerns raised about her skeletal changes, her physical appearance that suggested mucopolysaccharidosis. Allison had subtle facial changes which have been historically called coarsening or puffiness of the facial features. There was some significant curvature of the back or kyphosis or gibbous deformity of the back. There was also very, very subtle corneal clouding, a level of corneal clouding that would probably escape a routine diagnosis but could be identifiable with a slit lamp microscope by a, a trained ophthalmologist. This led to further evaluations for carpal tunnel syndrome which is typically asymptomatic in a child but are detectable by an EMG. To determine if Allison had a mucopolysaccharidosis, we ordinarily want to take a urine test to measure glycosaminoglycans, or GAGs, in the urine. When the GAGs are found to be elevated, that essentially is confirmation of an MPS, or mucopolysaccharidosis, condition. Hers were elevated, and that indicated that we should be doing additional confirmatory testing, and testing that would determine which of the different MPS types she actually was affected by. When we found the urine GAGs were elevated, we went on with enzyme testing from a blood sample we determined that she was deficient of the enzyme alpha-L-igeronidase. That defined her condition as mucopolysaccharidosis type 1. You've been listening to the case of Allison, who was diagnosed with MPS-1 by Dr. Chet Whitley, Advanced Therapies Department of Pediatrics and Institute of Human Genetics, University of Minnesota. To learn more about Allison's case and MPS-1 in general, please visit www.mps1diagnosis.com.